Welcome to the Fallon Forum, folks. Uh, as always, we try to bring you those independent voices and some civil dialogue that cuts across the gaping political divide in our country. I'm Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming at you from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. If you value what we do, we could sure use your support. Visit the donations page on our website, or if you run a small business, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has excellent catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. Hey, Iowa State Representative Chuck Eisenhart is one of our guests today, later in the program. Uh, we will be discussing oh, a bunch of stuff, um, including what's not happening at the Iowa State House regarding climate change. I'll also talk with Tamara Harrison about the alarming reality of food insecurity, which is getting worse. And for our farm and food conversation, Kathy Burns joins me, and we will be discussing butterflies. You know, it makes me nervous in the stomach just, just, just thinking about discussing butterflies. Hey, but first, uh, we've got a bunch of news stories to go over today. Uh, <laughs> but first, before the first, uh, I want to I ask you this question. Is the word Fallon in the dictionary? You know, I don't think it is, but um, maybe it will be someday. I don't know. You know, I was walking errands the other day. When I say walking errands, I mean that literally. I don't. When, I know when we say run errands, we mean we hop in a car. When I say run errands, I mean I walk. So I'm walking errands, and uh, I just so happy to have to be cutting through the event center. And um, there's not many people there. There's a couple people sitting. And this one woman says, "Hey, are you Ed Fallon?" I says, "Yeah." She says, "I'm." She, she just kind of cuts right through. She says, oh, I'm, I'm a multi-client lobbyist, and you fallened my bill years ago. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't remember this person. Uh, I don't, she even told me what the bill was, something to do with, um, with chickens, uh, with chicken confinements. And by fallon, I said, what do you mean by that? Didn't you? Did, I, did I defeat it? No, no, you just were the only no vote. Everybody was the green light, and I was thinking, this is great. It's just not controversial. And there you are with the no vote. And I was going to ask you why, she says, but I didn't bother. I wish she had because I can't remember. I don't remember why I voted no. I'm sure I had a good reason. Anyway, I guess to her, falloning, to, to fallon a bill means to be the lone vote against it. So, um, yeah, I doubt that's going to catch on. Hey, okay, all right. On to something a little teeny tiny bit more important. Finland joining NATO. Now, it seems like uh, pretty much everybody, mainstream media for sure, uh, even the Finnish people themselves, they seem to, have, they seem to be pretty eager to have... Finland join NATO, but you know, I think a little historical reflection is is in order, helpful. So, you know, of course, Russia back then, the USSR, they were our ally during World War II. And uh, to be clear, you know, as maybe you know, I'm not a, I'm not an all-out pacifist. I'm I'm the guy who says that nearly every war, every war in my lifetime has been a mistake. But you know, World War II, I don't know how you stop Hitler without doing something. So. I think having the USSR as an ally in that epic battle made sense. But, of course, you know, we always, we always like to have an enemy, enemy or two out there. So they were a convenient one during the Cold War. But once the Cold War collapsed, or the Cold War ended because the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, NATO no longer made any sense. I mean, that was, that was established. The North American Treaty Organization was established to provide a strong countervailing presence to the Soviet Union and all the countries that they were controlling at the time. But again, that, you know, so, so again, we, the U.S. promised Russia that we would not expand NATO and that we would not try to bring in countries that had been part of the Soviet alliance. And, you know, that made sense in terms of not trying to antagonize a former opponent and a very large nation and a nation that has 6,000 plus nuclear weapons. And so, um, you know, along comes Bill Clinton, uh, famous for talking out of both sides of his mouth. He launched the Partnership for Peace, good thing. But less than a year later, he suggests that NATO should be expanded, despite that being a promise made to, the, to, to Russia after the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union. And apparently there was very little, I don't really remember it either, but there was apparently very little debate about it back in the 90s, very little discussion. So um, 
Jacob Hornberger. I don't know a lot about the guy, but he was a one-time libertarian candidate for president, and apparently he might run again. But he wrote that, quote, the NATO bureaucrats and the Cold War officials within the U.S. national security establishment were not ready to let go of their Cold War racket, which they had milked for some 45 years. They had to figure out a way to keep their racket going. So, you know, to me, that is uh, awfully reminiscent of uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower's warning about the military-industrial complex. So, you know, no doubt Putin is a monster. We get that, sure. He's not the only monster leading a sovereign nation, of course. But maybe it'd be helpful to see all this from Russia's point of view, not necessarily Putin's point of view, but Russia's point of view. You know, NATO, I mean, there are, there are plenty who want to put NATO bases in Ukraine. I mean, how, how, is, how frightening is that to Russia, all right? Um, they also want to weaponize this. Now, now we have this 800-mile-long border between Finland and Russia that is now part of the NATO alliance, and they want to weaponize that, I'm sure. How, how comforting is that to a Russian, <laughs> you know? And how can we be comfortable knowing that we're ticking off a country that has, again, 6,000-plus nuclear weapons? You know, and, and, and of course, Sweden is, uh, well, if, if, unless Turkey continues to oppose it, Sweden will be a part of NATO, possibly. And, of course, there are those who want to make Ukraine part of NATO. And this, this, this you know, we, what we should be doing is gradually dismembering an alliance that, um, yeah, again, whose primary purpose in the past was to contain a, a threatening power. And now it seems like the primary purpose, if I can reflect back on what, uh, what Horn, Hornberger said, the primary purpose is to keep feeding the military-industrial complex beast. All right, so let me move on from that. What else? Uh, you may have heard, I'm sure you have, that three lawmakers in the uh, Tennessee legislature, Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, and Gloria Johnson, they were removed from office. Uh, well, oh, oops, sorry, wait a minute. The, the legislature voted to remove all three from office, but only, get this, only the two black guys got thrown out. <laughs> only, the two, only the two black lawmakers were expelled. Gloria, who was white, didn't get ousted. She survived by one vote. <laughs> Incredible. And so you probably have heard what this is about. Uh, the Guardian called it an extraordinary act of political retaliation for the lawmakers' role in a gun control demonstration after the killings at a Nashville elementary school last week. You know, and, and Joe Biden, President Biden, called the move, quote, shocking, undemocratic, and without precedent. He said, quote, three kids and three officials gunned down in yet another mass shooting. And what are GOP officials focused on? Punishing lawmakers who joined thousands of peaceful protesters calling for action. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just shocked. I mean, I don't know how this does not backfire against the Tennessee GOP. Um, and just to share some of the, uh, the um, perspective here, this is, uh, this is Justin Pearson talking about the, uh, the incident. You who celebrate July 4th, 1776, pop fireworks and eat hot dogs. You say to protest is wrong because you spoke out of turn, because you spoke up for people who are marginalized. You spoke up for children who won't ever be able to speak again. You spoke up for parents who don't want to live in fear. You spoke up for, for, for Larry Thorne who was murdered by gun violence. You spoke up for people that we don't want to care about. Yeah, that's uh, powerful stuff. And again, I, I don't know where this story goes, but I can't imagine we've heard the last of it. I mean, banishing these two representatives, you know, apparently this has only happened a couple of times since the Civil War. And again, again, mo I guess most, I, I did not know this. I mean, I'm, okay, I'm, darn, I wish I'd been expelled. It would have been, you know, a badge of honor. No, but most state legislatures possess this power to expel members. But again, it's, it's only, it's, it's rarely used. And it's usually when you've got a lawmaker who is accused of serious misconduct. It's not something that tends to be, you know, employed by the majority party against a member of the minority as a, as a form of political retribution. Crazy, crazy. We'll see where this goes. I, I think that uh, the Republican legislature in Tennessee might regret 
taking that action. I could be wrong. We'll see. Okay, what else? So um, I'm not sure we can top that story, but wait. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Sure we can. Enter Ron DeSantis. Democrats in Florida are attempting to use a state law that um, censors books in public schools against DeSantis. <laughs> they're, they're asking schools to review DeSantis' own book, quote, The Courage to Be Free. I think that's hilarious. The Courage to Be Free. That's a great name, right? That's the name you'd expect a, a politician running for president to, uh, to, to name his book, right? So it might backfire because uh, maybe more people will want to read the salacious details that allowed his book to qualify for bandage. Bandage is not a word either, by the way. I know Fallon is not a word. Bandage is not either. But maybe it'll become a word. Who knows? Anyway, you know what I mean. Uh, it qualified for bandage. So, you know, actually, I wish they'd ban my book while we're at it. Maybe it would help sales. I don't know. So uh, as reported in The Beast, uh, DeSantis, he uses the term woke and gender ideology, gender ideology, 46 times woke and 10 times for gender ideology, and both of which could constitute divisive concepts the governor has argued should stay out of curricula up to the college level, all the way through high school. So we'll see what happens. But, um, <laughs> you know, DeSantis apparently in his book also claims that students have been forced to, quote, chant to the Aztec god of human sacrifice. I would love to see a video clip of that one. Uh, also, that he's been, um, he has described violence at Black Lives Matter protests, um, warning about dead black children, about racist police and state-sanctioned violence. So we'll see whether the uh, Florida Democrats are capable of uh, getting DeSantis's book banned. That's hilarious. And uh, so <laughs> now there are, there are more than 1.5 million titles that are being reviewed for bandage. Anyway, uh, one of them is uh, Roberto Clemente's book. Uh, well, not, not by him, but about him. Roberto Clemente, Pride of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, uh, I mean, this is an Afro-Puerto Rican guy who just made history in baseball because of his incredible playing skills. Also a great guy. He died in a plane crash, apparently, while bringing uh, aid to Nicaraguans after an earthquake there. But um, they want to they ban this book because... Uh, of its references to racism and discrimination in flipping credible. Okay, so we'll see where that goes. Um, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the, the Florida book banning law says that books must align with state standards, uh, such as not teaching students about gender identity and sexual orientation and not teaching critical race theory. Uh, I guess anything to do with systemic racism. And um, it must also not include references to pornography. Okay, I get that one. Yeah, sure. But um, <laughs> come on. This is so out of control. And now there are, there are these, um, I wonder how you get to be a certified media specialist in Florida, but apparently there are 50 of them uh, in Duval County alone, I believe. And they are reviewing over 1.5 million book titles and they've been through 7,000, and they got a little ways to go. Anyway, <laughs> good luck, Roberto. Anyway, uh, hey, one more thing. Um, why is the mainstream media so dismal at coming, uh, covering the climate crisis? Um, I don't know, advertisers, readers? Uh, maybe reader, Maybe people just aren't interested in it. Maybe we can't hold our attention span long enough. Maybe it's our fault. Whatever, the coverage is pretty dismal. Uh, case in point, uh, the government, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, put out a report uh, just this month, or last month rather. It, uh, it featured um, scientists who were, and I quote from a story by FAIR, quote, running out of ways to emphasize how urgently deep cuts in fossil fuels are needed. The big deal in that story was that um, the, uh, there's a huge, uh, I, 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 again, we talked about the Antarctic ice shelf, uh, but but what what's related to that is the um, is the significant rise in the ocean's temperature, and the not not possibility the probability of the of the collapse of a circulation system, and what that might mean globally. It's huge, and it's um, the amount of coverage about it in the mainstream media has been nearly zip. Okay, and um, and related to that on a positive note. Um, Steve Pissark, he's a farmer, 
in eastern Iowa. He owns farmland. He farms near uh, Eli, a little uh, town near Cedar Rapids. And um, he is uh, he and his neighbors, uh, I, we talked about this recently with uh, Jessica Wiskus, but uh, 200 families have banded together to say, no, we're not going to allow eminent domain on our property. Basically, they're cutting off a route for the Wolf Pipeline to even exist. Wolf is, of course, persisting because of all the money in the, quote, Infl in Inflation Reduction Act for these uh, pipelines. But um, he said, uh, you know, he said, quote, I grew up in a neighborhood of multi-generational farmers who all feel the same way. It would, be to it would be a betrayal to our families. I would go to jail before I let them put that pipeline in my ground. We'll see where that goes, but it's good to see them fighting back. Because, again, this is not a climate solution at all. This, is, in fact, will do nothing to address climate change, might make it worse, and is a huge violation of property rights and also likely to lead to, the in inevitably, there will be spills and leaks, perhaps on the scale of the spill in Satarsha, Mississippi, maybe even worse. Hey, uh, this is Ed Fallon with you, folks. We've got to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, Chuck Eisenhower is going to join us. We're going to be talking about stuff happening at the State House. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, the niche that we provide here is more important than ever. So uh, please support what we do. You can go to the uh, Fallon Forum website or even better, you know, donate or even better, become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m., and also on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. All right, so with me in the studio are my former colleague and current state representative, Chuck Eisenhart from Dubuque. Hello, Chuck. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, the State House. Yeah, you're winding down on another very contentious session. Probably, right? Well, less so than in the past. Uh, we kind of like do the math. 63 uh, 64 to 36. 64 Republicans <laughs> to 36 Democrats. And uh, so we're probably as Democrats more irrelevant than ever. And so we're just not included in the conversation. Well, and therefore, there's not a whole lot of uh, conflict. Let's talk about relevance later. But I want to talk, I want to ask you about climate change. I mean, the, the climate crisis is just, uh, it's bearing down on us like a freight train. And, you know, you're hearing more, especially younger Republican voters who are saying, yeah, we got to do something about this. Is that is that perspective at all being heard at the state house this year? No, I think crickets is really the word to describe the conversation on climate uh, generally. We do have an economic development authority that's pretty strong on energy issues, and I think that's the tack they've taken over the years towards uh, the climate uh, issue. Um, but that word uh, is not uttered very often in the state house. So when you say the, uh, the, the the energy is the issue that Republicans seem to be interested in relevant to climate change, we're talking wind, I talked, solar, yeah. what else? And I was re referring to the Economic Development Authority, 
not necessarily about conversations in okay. the legislature. So, but uh, I mean, wind energy is now something that that lawmakers across the political spectrum have come to support, and maybe, uh, and maybe to the uh, in, in opposition to what some landowners uh, would prefer. But solar still seems to be uh, a political football. Um, and maybe one reason is the big utility giants haven't learned how to control it yet. But you've got, you've got debates about solar, um, but also some of those debates involve restricting its use. Do you see any efforts to try to restrict it this year? Any Maybe some positive efforts to expand access to solar? Uh, we haven't seen anything specific to solar. I think the thing that ties all of the things you talked about together, wind, solar, carbon pipelines... Uh, seems to be landowner rights. And do we want to actually, how significantly do we want to alter our landscape with those technologies? Well, I think landowner rights plays into the conversation about wind, but I don't see how it plays in regarding solar. I mean, I guess if you've got a huge multi-acre solar installation, that's one thing. But if it's just, um, you know, you know, uh, you know l- allowing people to put up solar on their own property, uh, allowing businesses and, and, and other entities to, to use solar without having to um, be seen as comp- competing with the utility companies. That's not a property rights issue. Certainly the pipeline is. That's, that's one thing the, pipeline ha- the pipelines have in common with wind. Well, I uh, beg to differ. I was at Pleasant Creek a Recreation Area, Lynn County, uh, taking some pictures, and no industrial solar signs were all over uh, well, neighboring I, landowners feel it's an infringement of their rights to have their neighbor change the view they've been used to looking at. And farm groups object to having prime farmland taken out of okay. production. Um, but I think to tie all of this back to climate and the pipeline, which is what I wanted to talk to you about today, because right. I think there's a okay. perspective not being discussed. We're talking about the carbon dioxide pipelines, plural, three of them. Right. Okay, what's that perspective that's not being discussed? Um, we see a lot of signs out there saying no ep- eminent domain for private gain. That's true enough, but I think the question is eminent domain for only private gain. And is there any public good, public use, public benefit associated with those pipelines. Is there? That's the ultimate question the utilities board is gonna have to decide. And what's your answer? Because that is what gives them the ability to grant eminent domain rights to a private company. I think the the jury is out, but I think the jury needs to convene and we need to have testimony. And that's really where this fight ought to be waged by interveners at the permit level. When George W. Bush started, national policy, carbon capture and sequestration, um, that evolved into carbon capture utilization and sequestration. Let's use that carbon dioxide. For example, the methanol industry thinks we could take some of that uh, and turn it into a non-emitting clean energy. Or make champagne and soda pop. Champagne and soda pop. That has now evolved into what I call CCTS, carbon capture transfer and sequestration. So but when you say the, the jury is out, I mean, it, 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 looks, it looks to me as if we've, it's pretty clear that these pipelines are not a, a climate solution. It's pretty clear that they are a significant invasion of uh, proper, uh, pri- private property rights. So what, what, what are we waiting for the jury to say on that? Well, I think the case that's going to be made by the pipeline companies is that it's a public good because why would the federal government be giving us 50 to $85 a ton oh, to do this? The federal government never does anything involving pork and, barrel uh, handouts to uh, corporate interests? The uh, argument would be that there is a climate benefit to sequestering carbon dioxide, but the assumption I think always has been that that was going to happen pretty close to where it was produced. And we weren't necessarily going to pipe it hundreds of miles. Thousands of miles. Thousands of miles. And would that benefit be maintained if you did that? The reason this came to my attention as a serious issue is because I attended one of the county meetings that Navigator Greenway had two years ago, a year and a half ago in 2021, in Manchester, Delaware County, where there's an ethanol plant. 
And the lady there representing the company said, there is no meaningful impact to atmospheric carbon as a result of our project. And I was going, well, what an admission, considering that seems to be the reason the federal government is (laughs) subsidizing it. I don't know if she was talking out of school at the time, but I think if we did a life cycle analysis of the benefit of it, would it be significant enough to create that public good and public use, especially at the levels we're subsidizing it? I think that's a question that hasn't been asked significantly oh, at any level. I think it's been asked. In a legislative sense. Really? You don't think it's been asked? I've not heard it discussed at all. Hmm. In fact, our economic or our Environmental Protection Committee chair held three meetings this year, <clears throat> unprecedented, none of them to deal with legislation, all to get input from various perspectives on the pipeline. In one of those meetings, as members were asking questions of the presenters, he said, we cannot ask any questions about climate change or atmospheric pollution. Why shut that down? Because that would, entertaining those questions, would admit that it's a problem. hypothetically could be addressed by the pipelines. No, see, and, 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 and so that, that said volumes Wait. to me. Okay, of course, I, know, I, I agree that climate change is a huge problem. That, that's, that's what we talk about that all the time on the show, but the problem with CO2, pipeline, CO2 pipelines, as some of us see it, it actually will make the, the climate problem worse. Okay, <laughs> but, but then what, let's, let's like bring the science to bear on well, that, that, that that's as part of the permit process. Okay, well, that science has been pretty clear. It's out there. It's not getting a lot of attention. Uh, in the science, let's bring those folks to the table and ask them to intervene in the in the process with the utilities board and present that evidence. So let's go specifically to the legislation on the table relevant to this. That's the the, the bill passed by the uh, House that would require a threshold of ninety percent of landowners would have to agree voluntarily agree to have the pipeline go across their property. They would have to agree. Before the eminent, before uh, the utility board, we'd be allowed to let them use eminent domain for the f- remaining ten percent. That bill passed the house overwhelmingly. There were twenty no votes. Now eleven of them were Democrats. <laughs> so uh, and that that's 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 the live round that would have a, a significant impact on this. Not live anymore, but go ahead. And it's not. And why is it not live anymore? The Senate refused to take it up, and Why I don't that? think they ever were going to take it up. Why is that? I, you'll have to get Brad Zahn back on to answer that question. Brad Zahn is very much in favor of passing <laughs> yeah, that legislation. But he can explain to you why it wasn't brought up. I don't think it was ever going to be brought up, and I think in part because they knew that the governor would never sign it. And the House never really, I've listened to Speaker Grassley, they never really um, brought the case to the Senate. They said, we've kind of done our job. This is important to us. We've made our statement. It's up to the Senate to act. There was really no, from what I could tell, conversation between the bodies. How do we get something done? So you're saying the House pretended to really want this and didn't. The Senate, yeah, just decided they really didn't want it. They're going to stick with the governor and former Governor Branstad and big donor Bruce, Bruce Rastetter against the constituents who were clamoring for this. Was that a question or a statement? Statement. <laughs> statement, and I wanted to see if you agreed with it. <laughs> I don't think that that's really uh, um, where the focus of the conversation should be. Um, I don't think it's helpful for that to be the focus of the conversation. Look, well, we I, once had a climate uh, change advisory council. I was that on it. Went out of existence, as you know, sure. in 2010. We never refer to that document anymore, even though it's never been formally repealed. Um, we adopted a very uh, um, ambitious energy plan, a very good plan in 2016, Economic Development Authority, carbon dioxide and methane are not mentioned in that plan. Pipelines are not mentioned in that plan. Sequestration is not mentioned in that plan. More recently, we've had a carbon sequestration task force. Pipelines are not mentioned in that. Ethanol is not mentioned in that. So there's a good question to be made whether or not this this administration thinks that carbon cat and sequestration is a significant enough solution to a problem to make it part of their planning. And I think all of that needs to be spoke, discussed openly and brought to the table as part of the utilities board decision. Well, I think, again, what I'm trying to bring to the table and be open about is the political influence involved here. I mean, on the Democratic side, you've got 
you know, um, Governor Vilsack's son, Jess Vilsack, what I believe is the the what, maybe the, one of the lead counsels for one of the I think for Summit. You've got on the Republican side. Oh, and you've also got, of course, labor unions that that some labor unions, the building trades in particular, who want to build anything. So uh, <laughs> I know that's the reason why some Democrats voted against the eminent domain bill. But then on the Republican side, you've got some pretty heavy hitters who want this thing in a big way. Doesn't that have to be on the table? That that discussion have to be, you know, and any any candid discussion has to include those political realities. Yes. But the utilities board is not going to pay attention to that discussion. No, but the, and they're the ones who are going to make the decision. And I think that's one well, of the, the flaws of the bill that we passed. It took away the utilities board's power and authority and responsibility to determine the potential public use and benefit by making it a, a more of a referendum of landowners directly impacted. And I think that's one of the reasons that that particular piece of legislation was flawed. And how did you vote on it? I voted against it, in part for that reason. Okay, but the but the uh, the the utility you could argue that the utilities board interpreted its responsibility wrongly in the Dakota Access Pipeline case. They allowed for the first time ever a private company to be able to use eminent domain for an infra for an infrastructure project that had nothing to do with the public good. I mean the the very very you know lame argument that oh well. It's it's they're 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 piping oil through the state, some of which will come back to us as gasoline for our cars. That is so weak, and so to say that well let's leave the let's leave the uh, the uh, decision making to the uh, utility board. They've already shown that they're flawed, that they can't think straight on this because I mean that that is transparently lame. That argument is just so weak. Well, certainly, it's a precedent that has to be dealt with, and precedents can be reversed. Um, but I don't know that how strong that are and who came to the table to make the counter argument in that case. Which argument that that was wrong? The public use and benefit. A lot and of the us, science associated a, with that. A lot of us said it was a really, really wrong interpretation. I mean, I've, that was a big issue. I get it. I understand. Yeah, I've been talking to climate scientists and say, you need to stand up for your science and your work, and you need to directly intervene in these public processes and not let other folks do that for you. Now, they don't have to directly sign up to speak before the utilities board, but I think there needs to be somebody marshalling the evidence that they can bring and bringing their testimony to the table. They're doing that, and they, they, put, they put, some, put some very compelling, very well-researched material saying this is not a climate solution. But if it's not delivered directly as part of testimony as, public, as the public hearing, the utilities board will not heed it. Well, um, my, 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 my concern is they won't heed it anyhow. They've already, they've already set a new standard that, yes, private companies can be given uh, the right to use eminent domain. And that's why, to me and to a lot of us, that 90% threshold is so important. Well, just to close out, because I hear, I understand we may be losing time here. Uh, we introduced a couple, I introduced a couple bills that presented alternatives. Uh, House File 682 and House... File 684. One directs money to the Iowa Geological Survey to let's study the ability of us to in Iowa to sequester carbon in a, in our own uh, aquifers, not water aquifers, but deep down uh, those air pockets that you know miles below. There's great evidence that we could do that here and sequester carbon without pipelines. The other bill re related to what the utilities board should be considering as part of these contested cases. We offered those amend that language to the Republicans. They did not accept it. We ended up introducing it as separate bills to say, here's how Democrats, at least this Democrat, would approach these issues. Okay. <laughs> so um, just to back, back to the politics of it for a minute. Uh, Brad's on, on this program said that if, if Republicans don't do something about this, they're going to pay the price in the next election. Do you think that's true? No. So you think Republicans can, again, fail to do anything to address the eminent domain slash carbon dioxide pipeline issue and not pay a price in 2024? Perhaps in a couple isolated places, but I don't see um, this 
gathering the gaining the attention of large groups of voters and certainly we've seen in the age of social media the attention span of many voters is pretty short mm-hmm. whether or not any of this will be remembered in November of 2020 well, let me ask you and maybe maybe this isn't the issue but let me ask you this if what is what is it going to take for Democrats to gain regain relevance in politics in Iowa I don't think it's the carbon pipeline part of it is it only affects directly two of districts currently represented by Iowa House members. And so I don't know that many of us have been getting uh, anything you mean, from you mean, our, Dem- you mean Democrats in the House? Right. So what is it going to take then? If, it's not, if pipelines aren't the Democrats' solution to trying to gain relevance in Iowa, what is it? That might be a conversation for another time. I'm not necessarily <laughs> okay. the person to ask, and I don't know that I necessarily know the answer to that who, question who, at this moment. Who should I ask? I think we have a new uh, state party chair, Rita Hart, who's very good. Right. And I think she is thinking very uh, in-depth about these questions. And uh, I do believe that that question needs to be asked. And some of the answers we come up with, we need to implement sooner rather than later. Yeah. All right. Hey, Chuck, thanks for joining me, even though Always we may disagree once in a while, like today, for example. Uh, good to have you on the program. Folks I, have been- I don't think we've disagreed so much as taken different uh thought paths on this issue. Nah, we disagreed. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Chuck uh, Eisenhower with me, folks, uh, Democrat representing uh, Dubuque County, joining me on the uh, uh, Fallon Forum here. Hey, when we come back from a short break, we're going to be talking about food security with Tamara Harrison. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. And thanks to our sponsors, including psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact David Drake Family Psychiatry.com. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. I would like to welcome to the program Tamara Harrison with the uh, Salvation Army. Uh, Tamara, we have uh, growing awareness in our state and in our nation about the, uh, the rising incidence of food insecurity. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, and I know that... Uh, just uh, again, this is not a unique problem to central Iowa, but what in your experience, what are we seeing that's causing concern? Well, you know, during the pandemic, of course, uh, you know, this became a, a real problem for a lot of Americans, um, you know, here in our community, too. And as we've come out of the pandemic um, and we've started to uh, get rid of a lot of the assistance, we forget there's a lot of people still struggling. It's a lot easier for a family that makes, let's say, 100000 a year to come back from a shortfall for a period of time than it is for somebody who was only making, you know, twenty to 30000 a year. Um, they may not be back on track yet, totally on their feet, still having trouble making ends meet. 
Um, and we got to remember that, you know, while there's still people needing help and, and they're still hungry, um, we need to continue to provide that service and not take it away. And so to what extent would you say the, uh, the end of COVID subsidies has been, the, has been contributing to the deepening of food insecurity? Well, I think it's certainly been a factor. I think, um, you know, we're, we're still just getting ready to see once again um, another drop in, in the number of people that are uh, uh, eligible for SNAP, I believe. And so, you know, again, we're going to see more people that are going, uh, wait a minute, I still need help. Um, and now it's gone. What do I do? So, um, you know, at the Salvation Army, we, we just want to really make sure that, you know, nobody who needs help is is turned away and that and that we're making sure people aren't going hungry, families aren't going hungry, um, or having to make those tough choices of, you know, what they're going to pay instead of food or uh, that they're not going to be able to pay because they need to feed their child. And as, as it stands right now, are, are families being turned away? Are food pantries not able to meet the demand? Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I think that we have. I think there's been, you know, as you know, a little bit of uh, a differencing in opinion on how things should be uh done um in 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 different ways and um i think we're finally you know getting on the same page and working together and and moving forward with that and i think that's going to help um i know for a while we started to get a little short on some items um and not being able to necessarily help as many as we could before but uh, um, but i mean are, are politicians all really on the same page i mean look what's happening at the uh, the state house here and you're seeing yeah. the same thing in state houses across the country where where uh Restrictions on what you can use to, what what you can purchase with your SNAP benefits. Uh, I mean, I mean, lo- I mean, lots of some of the stuff that's been proposed is just like mind-boggling. Uh, for some reason, no no cricket protein. I don't even know where that ever came from. Uh, that that actually got got ixnade, but uh, <laughs> I don't know where it even came from. <laughs> but some of these things are, are, are really serious. Uh, that they, 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 they put restrictions on people. It's not just about attacking junk food. It's about other things that might, I mean, there was a proposal here in Iowa not to allow people to use SNAP benefits to buy meat. Oh, which is insane. Yeah. I mean, that's, well, that's a basic need, you know, getting getting your protein, I guess, you know, you could assume they could get it from, I don't know, eggs, which are almost as expensive as meat nowadays, getting yeah, a little better, sure. but still, um, you know, that that's that's something that, you know, our growing kid needs and, and to say they're going to take that out of there, that just, that is ridiculous. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess to what extent can, can organizations like the Salvation Army, uh, like uh, the Duane Area Religious Council, like the Food Bank of Iowa, groups like that around the country, to what extent can, can, are their voices being uh, listened to by policymakers when it comes to deciding, you know, what to do in terms of providing adequate SNAP benefits, but also in terms of not restricting it to the point where you're taking away good, healthy food choices from people? Are those voices being heard? You know, I, I don't, I, I think by some, yes. I don't want to say across the board, nobody is. But I think there are others who might be out of touch that are not hearing it, that are not getting it, that haven't experienced um, the same things, that had the same experiences, had to make the same choices that, you know, a family at a much lower income level has had to, to deal with through this whole entire uh, pandemic and aftermath. And so they don't understand why they can't already be on their feet and they should already be over this and they should already be mm. moving on. Well, that, you know, it's not as easy as you might think. Yeah. Um, and, and the numbers that they put out there that um, help me out, Ed, I'm trying to remember it was, I know it was a ridiculous number um, for the SNAP benefits that they were going to make the new amount. Um, you had to have your, your net worth or your, your net earnings or gross earnings, whichever it was, had to be under a really low number for a family of four. Yes, I can't remember what it was. Or, or it, I, I want to say thirty thousand for a family of four. I'm like, how do you live on that by yeah. almost even by? And, does, and doesn't that also include your car, uh, other assets as well? I can't remember now. But um, again, these these um, these proposals vary from state to state. But it just seems. Um, I mean, you're in the front lines. You're seeing what's happening, and you're seeing that there are more people who are food insecure. And you would hope that our policymakers would respond not by restricting access to food, but by creating additional access. That's my concern. Oh, yeah. Uh, additional access to food and, and, and how can we 
be proactive in, in getting, you know, these the, the continuing inflation and cost of food going up, going in the other direction. Yeah. And one, one thing that, uh, that, that has been happening here at the local level, and again, this is also something you see around the country, is more and more concern about, about um, you know, about, about creating sustainable food systems locally. I mean, so much of our food still comes from far away, some, sometimes from halfway around the world, uh, one thing happening here in Des Moines is increased efforts to encourage the city to be involved in incenting local food production, not just community gardens, but public plantings of fruit trees, of shrubs, of pollinator habitat, um, more access to land for community gardens, um, uh, and also creating spaces where people can full-time farm. I mean, for example, we had a uh, there was a family that came by to see us. Uh, they were from Burundi originally, and they had access to a couple acres of uh, really excellent farmland in the city that was gobbled up for industry, uh, for, for some commercial oh. purpose. And again, taking great farmland out of production, and they're wondering, well, where do we go to continue to raise food? Not just, I mean, it wasn't just for their own consumption. They were actually making a living selling that food. So, um, you know, how do we how do we make sure how, how do we put pressure on our cities and, and county leaders to make sure that they understand that, yeah, food self, you know, food, food security is about what all we all do, not just um, not just food banks, not just the Salvation Army. Uh, there's got to be a commitment to doing it. And that's that's my stump speech for today. Uh, to, uh, Tamara, I'll throw it back. I'll throw it back at you. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's it's on all of us to make sure that when we have concerns about anything, but especially this right now and concern for others that we're talking to our legislators and we're talking to our city councils and we're talking to, um, you know, our friends and neighbors even and, and you know, making sure that there's awareness about uh, need, what that need is. And not only that, how can we even as the community, not necessarily relying on our neighbors, but what can we do as a community in a neighborhood or, or whatever group? Uh, do to affect that change um, and to make it happen, whether it's volunteering at an organization who's doing something, uh, starting your own garden, doing, be proactive, do, do something. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, it has to start at the, the very grassroots level um, <laughs> to, to see any kind of real change there. Yeah. Um, and, and you, you can't rely on, the legislators or in your electeds and nagging them to <laughs> think you're going to get anything done. There's too many differing in opinions on, on what it is that needs to be done. So yeah. well, I know the, the, um, the, the nagging has to happen, but you're right. It has to go beyond oh, yeah. that as well. So yeah, yeah it's, 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 a, it's, it takes both, but, yeah. but I've seen more action come out of groups of people actually doing something than, mm. um, you know, now, just calling for it. Now, as, as, a, as a big advocate for eating healthy, and that would include, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, we're, you know, Kathy and I are omnivores, but we have a significant portion of our diet is, uh, is vegetable products uh, and fresh products. I know a lot of times when you go to a you know, food pantry, you, mo you see a lot of canned and dried goods, and that's certainly necessary to help families be able to, you know, sustain themselves, you know, find the calories mm -hmm. they need. But nothing beats uh, fresh produce, you know, in terms of nutrition, nutri nutrient value. And so to what extent are, is, uh, are, are you able to provide those options on your, in, in, your, in, your space, in your pantry? Well, what's really nice is that we do have some local farms. And um, I, if, if I had any inkling this was going to come up, I want to apologize to them right now because I don't have a list in front of me. Um, to name everybody, but oh, that's okay. there is there are several uh, smaller farms. Um, I think one slightly bigger, um, but that donate boxes of vegetables to our our pantries on a regular basis, and occasionally fruits too. Depends on the season, right? Um, and and so we we do have the ability often to to offer fresh produce um, for folks when they come in and. Uh, and I think that's that's really important. You know, you're getting your basics. We've got meat, we've got dairy, and then to have that produce, and of course, mm -hmm. you know, the different grains, um, bread, rice. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's a there's a variety offered to them, and we we are really grateful to our community partners um, at the local level, who most often are the reason that we are able to have stuff like that. And one last question, Tamara, before we got to run to a break. I mean, you 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 operate primarily in an urban community. Uh, what, what about rural communities? I mean, you're seeing an increased uh, 
uh, level of food insecurity in rural communities. Is there any efforts, are there any efforts underway to address that problem, uh, you know, far removed from the cities? I'm, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, yes. And in fact, uh, last year I went to DART and I said, hey, could we have a bus? And they said, hey, yes, you can. <laughs> a um, bus? And, and they gave us a 40-foot bus and we wrapped it and um, redid the inside. It is now a mobile social service center where we can actually go to smaller towns, rural communities in Polk, Dallas, and Warren County. Um, we have food items, cold and, and you know, shelf items. Um, but it's not just a food pantry. We also do rent assistance, utility mm. assistance, clothing, clothing vouchers, um, seasonal items, personal care, home goods, um, and partner with other organizations that come and, and offer their services as well. And we work with the local communities like uh, uh, Mondays we go to DeSoto and Redfield. Um, I think it's the first and third Mondays of the month, for example. And so we worked with those communities and we actually park at the city hall in the morning at DeSoto and in the afternoon in Redfield so that, you know, these communities that may not have a lot of resources available and, and might have a lot of folks struggling, we can come to them. Mm. That's and good. And so we're, we're, yeah. we're trying to find uh, and, and trying to continue to build funding and, and support for that because I think there's a, a greater need than we know as you get further out there. Sure, yeah. Um, where we might be able to, you know, expand on that in the future yeah. and go to the people, especially when gas prices got so high. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, people, it was a catch-22. You might have enough for gas to get there, but then you don't have anything to buy. Right, yeah. Um, you know, because some of these folks truly are, other than a Casey's, uh, maybe, and, and, and love Casey's, don't get me wrong, but other than a, a gas station um, that might be real local, and if they're lucky, they might have a Dollar General, but, um, you know, it could be 20, 30, 40 miles for them to, sure. to get to a real grocery store. Yeah. Well, Tamara, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, of course. Folks, we've been talking. Thank talk you for having me. We've been talking with Tamara Harrison with the uh, Salvation Army about uh, concerns about food insecurity. So, hey, when we come back from a short break, we're going to be talking more about food. Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be discussing monarch butterflies and what they do for planet Earth. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the angry shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Kathy Burns, welcome to the studio. Good to have you here today on this bright, sunny, beautiful day in Des Moines, Iowa. We're going to be talking, I understand, about butterflies. And that just makes my stomach get all jittery just thinking about that. That's cute. Okay, thanks. That's really cute. <laughs> this is the great time to talk about butterflies because now is the time that, and, and in the fall too, that you can think about what you can do to help mm. monarch populations as well as other pollinators. Yeah. And so, I mean, we all know they're in decline and this is a serious problem. Right. Uh, I'm going to quote uh, friendsoftheearth.org. Uh, because it, it really ca encapsulates the urgency of the situation. 
Monarchs share their habitat with many other species of insects and birds. The birds would lose a food source, and their decline is the proverbial canary in the coal mine for other pollinators. If other pollinators decline like monarchs, it could have impacts on foods that humans rely on. And that's the end of the quote, but I'll add, and the health of the planet overall. Right. So do we, uh, do we have any sense of just how serious the decline in population is? It's drastic. There are two types of monarchs in the U.S. The eastern monarchs, of course, are east of the Rockies, western monarchs west of the Rockies. In, uh, uh, since, 20, uh, since 2001, eastern monarch populations have decreased by at least 80%. Okay. And it's worse That's, for Western monarchs. Wor- uh, worse than that? Um, the populations have declined by more than 99% since the 1980s. In fact, in winter of 2018 and 2019, there were fewer than 30,000 total Western monarchs. Uh, but efforts to help them rebound have started to become effective. So what, uh, what is behind this precipitous decline in monarch populations? There are several things at play. There's a loss of milkweed. That mm, is the right. only plant, as, as people know, that monarchs can lay their eggs on because that's the only plant that a monarch larva will eat. Also, pesticide use, and that may have something to do with the loss of the milkweed. There's a right. loss of flowers also that the adults can feed on. The adults mm. don't eat the, uh, the milkweed. They eat you know nectar from flowers. The logging industry has had a huge huge effect on the winter sites for monarchs. Is that more out west? Uh, it's so, it's east and west. East well, and west, I mean, right. yeah, they yeah. need uh, really tall trees to cluster in. I think it's a little more out west. Um, also, climate change in general is affecting all of the previous three things. So the availability of milkweed blossoms, overwintering yeah. sites, just everything. So so we think we think of monarchs, uh, and one one big event in the monarch calendar year is the migration, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool when you've had a chance to see it. What's what's going on with that? Well, for the Western monarchs, it's pretty much, they're, you know, they're out in the Western states. They migrate to the southern coasts of California. Mm. Then they migrate back. It's, it's not quite as dramatic. In the Eastern monarchs, the winter to summer migration is crucial because they come from the uh, Sierra Madre Mountains in Mexico. In, in and they go to the northern areas uh, over four months, but that is three to five generations. Oh, wow. It takes four months. When they go back to Mexico, it's just uh, the up to the first generation. So some do that. some monarchs only know flying. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they, they've and been on the move, and flying breeding. and eating and breeding. They're, they've been they've been on the move their entire life. That's right. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so there yeah. are, are some efforts in place. Yeah, right? so like, yeah, what, what's happening? What, what's being done? Well, something in Iowa, which is kind of nice. Uh, there's a, a new cost-sharing program through the Practical Farmers of Iowa and the Circes Society, and they're seeking small-scale urban farmers to plant beneficial insect habitats on their urban farms. Okay. So that will help uh, refurbish the, poly- the, you know, the, the pollinators in general, and butterflies being part of that. Uh, also, in, at UW-Madison, there's, as, as well as a lot of other places, but one example is there's a monarch larvae uh, monitoring project. Uh, they do some training workshops, and just keeping track of the number of larvae mm. that people find helps to know where the efforts need to be concentrated. Sounds like we should be taking monarchs a heck of a lot more seriously than we are. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us. You bet. Kathy Burns, folks, with Birds and Bees Urban Farm, one of many hats she wears. Hey, thanks to my guests this week, uh, State Representative Chuck Eisenhart and Tamara Harrison with the Salvation Army. Also, thanks to our production squad, Sherry the Vampire Slayer, Herdina, Forrest Not Gump Detterman, Dr. Charles Mr. Empathy Goldman, and Kathy Madam Monarch Burns. And myself, Ed Fallon, the recovering politician. Hey, thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, 
Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. Remember, your support for this program program matters a lot. Go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. And thanks again. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.